This is BTS with CTV Behind the Scenes, Behind the Stories we bring you from the CTV Vancouver Newsroom. My name is Penny Daflos and I'll be your guide behind the curtain to coverage of a measles outbreak in the Vancouver area. The number of people possibly exposed, staggering, at airports, hotels, public transportation and retail stores. As health officials alerted the public to possible exposure sites, they also tried to convey the risks. For example, while people are infectious for days, surfaces in public areas were only a concern for a couple hours. There's no reason to shut any of these places down, and there's also no reason for the public to avoid going to any of these locations now. Some businesses struggle to get that information across. And I get it, some people are scared, and that's, I think, what fuels a lot of it. But learn the facts before you get behind the keyboard. There is a person that is dealing with a tough situation, so keep that in mind. Those who couldn't get vaccinated have been growing more concerned as the number of infections keeps growing. And while most were linked to international travel, parents of babies too young to vaccinate are feeling more anxious by the day. We're totally on edge because of his history. Max was born premature and needed surgery to remove an abdominal blockage. Given that he's a NICU baby, given he's a premature baby, it puts him at high risk for all types of health illnesses, um, up to and including being exposed to the measles virus. As possible exposure sites ranged from Steveston to Whistler and even Alberta, teens and young adults began to show up in doctor's offices asking to be vaccinated against their parents' wishes. My mom was very anti-vax. Um, she was very, uh, she was into homeopathy. She was into more natural solutions. With all this information in the news about the measles outbreak and stuff, it's it just became such a bigger responsibility. It gives me hope that we'll be able to protect a generation more interested in getting safe, effective treatments. Reporter Shannon Patterson joins me now. And Shannon, you and I, I feel like we've done about a dozen measles stories, but I think it's just because these days have been so intense and there have been so many developments. Um, I guess what's your initial thought in terms of doing stories on a disease that was supposed to be more or less eradicated in our country years ago? I find it interesting that this measles outbreak has gotten as much attention as it has because we had one in the Fraser Valley in 2014 where there was hundreds of exposures. And although I remember it, I don't remember it getting as much attention as it is now. And I do think one of the reasons it's getting the attention is because of the anti-vaxxer movement. It seems to have gotten a little bit more attention. And I think now the reason this outbreak is getting the attention it is, is because there's also been a fight back from the scientific side, from the people who know that this is safe for children and required and necessary to protect them from easily preventable disease. So I think it's really touched a button this time because I think people who believe in science are frankly angry that there are people who don't who are leaving their kids at risk and therefore putting other kids at risk. I think also the fact that it is um, in the Vancouver School District that we've seen schools affected. Yes, they're French language schools. There aren't going to be a lot of families with our kids in French immersion. But I think that outbreak in the Valley, it just seemed further away. It was around a, a particular religious community. So I think for a lot of people, it was a matter of, well, how does that affect me? Whereas this, now we're hearing about exposures, um, YVR, all the way up to Whistler Squamish. Uh, that becomes, uh, oh God, what about me? Because we know... Um, 
you know, the, the scientific research tells us that you could vaccinate a hundred people, um, and just natural physiology, the biology people, it's about an 85 to 90%, um, success rate. Uh, and that's why measles, you get it, the vaccine twice. Uh, but you could, and that's why herd immunity is so important. So I think just the fact that it is so much closer to so many more people makes it a lot more visceral as opposed to something that seems so far away out in the Valley. And the first exposure we heard about children's hospital in Vancouver. Think mm-hmm. about that. Who's at Children's Hospital? Some of the most vulnerable kids, sick kids, kids who maybe can't get vaccinated because they're immunocompromised. So I met, um, my first measles story of this outbreak, I met a mom named Stefania Secha, and her little boy, Max, uh, was premature. And he had uh, lots of health complications in the first few months of his life and required surgery to correct an an abdominal blockage. Because of that, Max, for his first year, is considered a high-risk baby. Well, Max went back to Children's for um, a health issue when he was about 11 months old. He happened to be in Children's Emerge the same time as a little boy who was brought there, apparently by his parents, who had measles. So Stefania, a couple weeks before Max's first birthday, got a phone call saying that your son who has not yet been vaccinated because he's not old enough, the first vaccines at 12 months, may have been exposed to measles. Because of that, you have to quarantine your little boy. You have to keep him at home. You can't let him leave the house for, I think at the time for her, it was, I think, nine days were left in his possible exposure period where she had to keep him inside in case. And because he's considered high risk for little Max, measles could be really dangerous. So this mom really brought it home for me. She wished she could vaccinate Max, but he was just shy of his first birthday where they give that first MMR vaccine. So now, because she couldn't vaccinate him, she had to keep him inside. He had to miss his first birthday party because they had made plans for his first birthday. Ironically, she had made his first MMR vaccination appointment for two days after his birthday. He couldn't go because he was in quarantine in case he already had the measles. He wasn't quarantined to protect him. He was quarantined to protect others in case that little baby had the measles. It really brought it home for me that she didn't do anything wrong. And her little boy was put at risk by somebody who brought their child with measles to children's hospitals. So, yeah, it it feels close to home for parents. And that story, you know, if people wonder how we choose which stories we cover for a given issue and this measles outbreak, for example, you can quote all the stats to people. You can give them scientific research. You can show them graphs and charts and all sorts of things. When you see a little child who is at risk, and I, I, the storytelling that you did on that story, by the way, Shannon, showing that poor little dude behind the glass. Banging on the banging glass. Banging on the glass because he, he wanted to play with you. He, I think he wanted to play with the camera operator, and he just stuck behind the glass like that. To me, seeing the consequences, just as journalists, I think that's the kind of stuff that is exactly the type of story that personalizes it. It's not about statistics. It's not about a nameless, faceless person who is at risk. It is about that little boy. And I think, you know, judging from the web traffic, because that's one of our metrics to find out just how much things resonate, that story went through the roof, and for good reason, because it was just such a poignant personal consequence of what this measles outbreak actually means. And I can tell you as a reporter, it was challenging to do because when we do stories about babies, 
we want to see the baby. Yeah. We want to meet the baby. We want to see the baby sitting on the living room floor playing with his toys. So we showed up and met Stefania, and she came outside because Max was not allowed to come outside to see us, nor were we allowed to go inside and see Max. So uh, me and the wonderful Steve Saunders, who was my photographer that day, tried to figure out the best way to tell Max's story. And so they literally brought him to a sliding glass door, and they put him up against the door, and we had Steve on one side and Max on the other, and his dad was in there holding him, and he was fascinated by our camera. And he came up, and he banged his little hand on the glass and smiled at us and cooed and made noise. Um, and so I think it, at first I was worried that I couldn't storytell this way, but Steve was very smart, and he said, this is the story. The story is we can't go inside. And so that was the first line of my story. This is as close as we can get to Max Setcha-Smith. Um, and and that's a really good example. I should add our collaboration with our photographers. This is such a, you can feel stuck as a reporter because you're thinking about the editorial and the message. And they're thinking oftentimes about the visuals so they can help you tell a story in such a way. I, I just thought that combo was the best, just the information plus seeing the little dude behind the glass. I, it still just breaks my heart. It really does. Another story that went huge for us online, the, I think it was the day after Max's story aired, is you talked to some young people whose parents chose not to vaccinate them and they decided when they got to of age heck I, I don't care what my parents think I'm not an anti-vaxxer I want to vaccinate and that must have also brought it home for you that these decisions are made by parents when a child is too young to decide for themselves and once that person's old enough to decide they can be of a different mind than their parents actually it was the same day and I'm really grateful that we were able to tell those stories back to back because it's from a perspective of a parent, and then it's a, from a perspective of somebody that you can imagine yourself being in their shoes. Maddie Bissett, who um, we, who I, I spoke with, she's 23, uh, but she talked to us really frankly about growing up in an anti-vax home and telling me about how her mother, she's like, she lied to me and my sister. She gave us all sorts of reasons for why we couldn't be vaccinated. And that's why we didn't. But as I grew, she just explained getting older, talking to her friends, and then being open to looking at the research. And I just thought it was such a powerful example of how you can grow up in a setting where you're believing all sorts of things. You think that your parents are... And I do think that her mom was doing what she felt was right. She talked about her dad being just kind of hands-off and, well, just you do whatever you want to do, which de facto turned into being an anti-vaxxer himself. And that example, I think, resonated so much because people could imagine themselves being in that situation. And then the bravery of... So Maddie is 23, so that's why it was easy for us to talk to her. We have to be careful around ages for the people we spoke to. Uh, But Dr. Eric Kadeski, who I clipped for the story as well, the president of the Doctors of BC, he told me the youngest person he had go into his practice looking for a vaccination for measles, 14 years old. I think that's fantastic. It just shows that, you know, because your parents believe one thing, you can believe something else. And I think the the good part about this uh, latest outbreak is it has educated people about the consequences of not vaccinating. And Yes, there are people that will always dig their heels in. There are people who it doesn't matter how much science you show them. It doesn't matter how many kids like Max you show them and say, why are you putting a vulnerable child like Max at risk by sending your child with measles to the children's emergency room? Some people you cannot get through to. And, um, you know, uh, We get a lot of flack as the media, uh, and I've been told by our management that we did get a lot of flack, the stories that you did and I did that week, that we weren't, that we were unbalanced. Um, But we as a newsroom have, we we don't need to balance um, 
misinformation. We don't have to put out misinformation. And actually, uh, later that week, later last week, I did a story about anti-vaxxers, and I didn't speak to any anti-vaxxers. I presented some of the um, attitudes that they had, that they were, and just talking about how they were fighting against the information from medical professionals, because I thought it was important for people who may not look at the comments on our stories, who may be unaware of kind of the reaction to it, because... I was trying to find out how many people have this attitude and it's actually quite complicated. And so I talked to, um, a a researcher at UBC that that is her area of study. That's what she looks into. And she told me that they figure there's about two or 3% of the population will never want to be vaccinated. That's a historic thing. It goes back to when vaccines first came around and people were distrustful of putting something foreign into their body. I get that for sure. But what I found very, even more interesting was vaccine hesitant people who may have some vaccines and not others or maybe we'll delay their children getting a vaccine. That's between 10 and 20%, depending on the vaccine. The biggest hesitancy is still around the measles vaccine, and it's still around this research from 1998. And so that's why I wanted to dig into it, because think about it. The internet was really new. Stuff was really just starting to kind of come out in 1998. And in the years following it, that study um, wasn't discredited. Linking measles to autism wasn't discredited till 2010. 12 years to take a foothold, and that's why still to this day. It's 2019 and you and I are still talking about people who are doubting it because it it was just kind of at that time when it was able to take a foothold, expose those ideas to other people and we're still dealing with this misinformation. It is staggering to me and then how balanced should we be on something like that? I, I really believe we don't have to be balanced for something that's been proven wrong time and again on an issue that's a public health, uh, major public health issue. No, I don't feel the pressure to do that either. Um, I'm a parent, and I just feel like um, there's science, and you trust medical health professionals in science, uh, and then there's somebody who trusts a completely debunked, uh, falsified study, like you said, from 1998, uh, over medical professionals for reasons that don't make sense to me. Some suspicion about, quote, big pharma or this vast conspiracy among the media and medical doctors. For what possible reason would I be telling you to vaccinate if I knew deep down it was harmful? Why would any medical professional, why would anybody do that? And they think there's this conspiracy theory that they're in the pockets of big pharma. Yeah, pharmaceutical companies have to make vaccines. I mean, there needs to be a certain standard. It needs to be sterilized. There's all these things that you can't just cook it in your in your kitchen, right? I don't know about you, Penny, but my check from big pharma has not arrived. <laughs> Well, and that's and, and same thing with medical professionals. Like these are people who work long hours. They dedicate their lives to studying this stuff. Yeah, sometimes you know th- they get things wrong. But I think one of the misconceptions out there among the anti-vaxxers is, is that oh, this was all based on research and studies done years ago, and that you know there's no tweaking of vaccines. There is research going on right now at BC Children's Hospital. They monitor every new thing because I asked about that. I'm like, well, what about this idea that you guys you know rubber stamped something ages ago? And I and I found out that yeah, there's still research going on constantly. And I think that that should, again, be a a source of, um, it it should, you know, soothe people's concerns. They should be, you know, the fact that the medical establishment is on this should, you know. It should. I worry that it won't. 
just the polarization that we live in. So um, the final measles story I did in my week of measles, uh, I had measles all week, as I joked with everybody (laughs) here, um, was that 23 school kids at two um, French language schools in Vancouver were not allowed to go to school because they could not show proof of of having vaccinated their, their children. And I asked the medical health officer how much of that is just lack of documentation and how much of that is staunch anti-vaxxers. And she said she didn't, she couldn't give me the exact numbers, but yes, out of those 23, even though measles had ripped through those two schools and left, you know, a half dozen or more kids sick, there were still parents refusing to vaccinate their kids at those two schools. And I just don't understand. I just don't get it. I think though, kind of looking forward, the benefit of something like this happening is it has opened a dialogue again, even if it's a matter of a few dozen or a few hundred, it's only anecdotal evidence so far of young people who are going to get vaccinated against their parents' wishes. If all of this news coverage and discussion helps somebody really think about, oh my God, I've never thought about this. I've never asked my parents. I, myself, I'm in the age group that um, I'm planning to go get a, an MMR booster because I don't know if I got that second shot. My mom knows I got the first one. She can't find our you know, papers and stuff for, for the second one, so I'm, I'm going to go. Uh, but I think what this story also did, or this issue, I should say, because there were a lot of stories, it's one of those things that it exposes the echo chamber effect in society. And it is so easy now to just read what you want to read. Just, um, you know, we're all stressed out. We've all got stuff going on. We don't want to be confronted with something that we disagree with. I think we all, you know, like to read things that we agree with or make us feel good. And and I think in this case, it really exposed. Everybody probably has Facebook friends that they're like, oh God, you're an anti-vaxxer. You're vaccine hesitant. So it started a discussion and just that realization that this is an issue where echo chambers and vulcanism and, you know, breaking up into tribes over an issue really has an effect in our day-to-day lives. And uh, there's an argument that a little good old-fashioned public shaming is in order for people who won't vaccinate their children. And so I've seen on my own Facebook, you know, uh, people say, if you are an anti-vaxxer, unfriend me. I'm not interested in being your friend because you're putting my own children at risk, you're putting other children at risk, and it's selfish. And so Again, it it brought up a discussion not only amongst the public, but amongst the government. So uh, another story I did in my week of measles was what Ontario does. Uh, And also one of the maritime provinces as well is they require proof of documentation before you can enter school doesn't mean that you can enter, uh, you necessarily are legally required to be vaccinated. But what you're legally required to do is provide proof of what you have vaccinated for. And if you are refusing to vaccinate for whatever reason, they require you to intend, attend an information session where they will give you scientific evidence. Now, you and I both know that anti-vaxxers will sit in that session and they'll plug their ears and they'll think it's all government propaganda and they won't soak it in. But at the very least, they're being forced to sit through what the science is. If, like you said, they're those people who refuse to look at anything but their own viewpoint, if they've only gone to web pages that somehow justify their anti-vaxxer feeling, what they're forced to do in Ontario is at least for a half an hour session or however long it is, listen to the science They're shown what the repercussions for not vaccinating are, not only for their own children, but for other children who are immunocompromised and perhaps can't be vaccinated. It does sound now like that by the beginning of next school year, this will be required in B.C. And I'm curious to see how it rolls out, because there will be parents from other countries, perhaps, that don't have uh, proof of vaccination for whom this might be challenging. But I'm... I'm in favor of this. I think that um, at the very least, what it does is when there's an outbreak, like there was at these two French schools, they'll know right away which kids aren't vaccinated. And not only do you have to, um, you know, 
show that you're not vaccinated. What you're also agreeing to in Ontario is if there is an outbreak at your child's school, you are saying and signing off on the fact your kid can't come to school. And so you're agreeing that your child may have to be pulled from school for a couple of weeks. And a lot of, for most parents, working parents, pulling your kid out of school for a few weeks is disastrous on your life. And so it looks like we're going the same way in British Columbia. It'll be a story as we get to September here in our newsroom about how to cover this because there will be staunch anti-vaxxers who will, the idea of even having to turn over documentation to the province they think is an invasion of their privacy and their rights as a parent. Um, Like I said, there'll be parents who can't find documentation. There's going to be a rollout issue. This has actually been in Ontario for a long time. The fact it's new for us, especially at a time of polarization like now, the rollout may not go as smoothly as it did in Ontario when they started this. I think it was like 20 years ago. So it's been going on for a while, but we're doing the same thing. And I, and this would not have happened were it not for this recent outbreak. It got reporters asking Adrian Dix, the health minister, again and again and again, what are you going to do? Why aren't you forcing parents to provide proof? And it looks like they're going to. And I think part of what made the public really push for this, because there's been a petition and all sorts of um, public engagement on this issue, again, is um, our newsroom, other newsrooms, finding people who've been impacted, trying to tell the human side of that story, again, instead of statistics. And I think as people watch this, um, there were another two cases uh, reported just today as we record this podcast. Um, you're going to see as this issue continues, whether it's implementation of a registration system at school or whether it's more cases as, you know, however many cases and counting, um, you're going to see more people, more human impact. And I think that that's so important in this day and age. And I think that that's really what has engaged people in this issue is seeing uh, baby Max, is seeing Maddie, is seeing the the human impact, how people are responding to this and what effect it's having on so many different families. And that's what we can do as the media. Again, spouting statistics has very little impact. Um, There are people who's made up their mind about the media no matter what. But in the end, putting people on TV who've been impacted, it's a lot harder to ignore baby Max than it is to ignore Shannon, the reporter. If you've already decided I'm somehow biased or bought off or whatever it is that people think the media is for putting statistics and stories about vaccination on the air. But you're right. Um, when you show people impacted directly, um, this family who had to keep their little boy in lockup for a week, um, I got a lot of feedback on that story, but and I also got feedback from people who think that we are hopelessly biased and we're our heads in the sand, either by choice or for being naive. And that's going to happen no matter what. We have thick skins. We have to. We're used to it. But I think that we're doing a public service to show people the impact of something like this. And I have to say the the families speaking to us and the individuals speaking up about this are also doing a public service by putting their faces out there, putting their reputations out there and, and talking about their baby and talking about their, their moms in Maddie's case. You know, these are deeply personal issues, people's health. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. It's, it's your health and your family. So we are so appreciative of the people who are willing to speak up because clearly it's having an impact on the public discussion and we couldn't tell those stories without them. So I can't uh, express how much um, I really appreciate uh, people like Maddie and Max's parents for speaking up. And I'm sure they got a lot of hate for it. Uh, Because if you can find somebody's name online and you can find social media platforms, you know and I know that the hate came out for these people. And um, I feel for them because that happens with interview subjects for us frequently with various hot-button topics. But you're right. um, Stefania, Max's mom, who decided to speak to us, she knew that she was going to get hate for it. But she said, I don't care. You know, it took this happening to her. And in the end, Max didn't have measles. 
So it's not that that little boy got really sick. It's not that, you know, he had massive implications from this. But what it was was a week of fear for for parents who've been through enough. That little boy had been through so many health problems in his first year. The idea that just before he was going to get vaccinated, his parents were told, well, he might already have measles, so you got to keep him inside. That's a lot for parents to go through. And I think any parent, even the ones who might be vaccine-hesitant, has to feel for that family, don't they? Um, I would think so. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I, I, I have a hard time understanding. I have a hard time understanding anyone who would leave their baby vulnerable. Well, and I love that we have such a diverse staff. Like, you're a mom, I'm not. Um, we've got all sorts of people of different age ranges, different backgrounds in our newsroom. And the fact that you are a mom, I think, comes through in the story, um, advocating for this little baby and, and for other people that are too young. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks again, Penny. It's always fun. I'd also like to thank Dylan Baker for his help with archival audio this week. And thank you for joining us on BTS with CTV. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on a future podcast? Email me, bts at ctv.ca. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe for more insights, tidbits, and the stories behind the stories. I'm Penny Daphlos.